again seems to be testing my diction in reading chapter 8, but we'll be starting in chapter 7, going from verses 1 to 10, and then from verse 27 of chapter 7 through to the end of chapter 8. So, starting at verse 1 of chapter 7, let's read God's word. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meriaoth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And then down to verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counsellors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up from me, up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, David Huttush. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was the son, who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pahath, Moab. Eliahonei, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shalomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebei, Zechariah, the son of Bebei, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonakam, those who came later, their names being Eliphalet, Jeul, and Shemei, and with him 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvei, Uthai and Zakur, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, 
Shemaiah, El Nathan, Jarib, El Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and El Nathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the palace, at the place Casaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah, and with them Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counsellors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jozebed, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, twenty-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. It was December 20th, 2017, at approximately 3.30 p.m. 
I was sitting in my car at Thornton Creek Elementary School in Northville, Michigan. I just finished singing with my a cappella group uh, to a gymnasium full of primary school children. I was only a five-minute drive away from home, but yet I knew that there was an email in my inbox from New York University that I was very much waiting to open. That five minutes felt like an eternity, and I couldn't wait any longer. So as soon as that door closed on my car, I opened the email, only to be filled with an overwhelming wave of disappointment. It was March 13th, 2020, only 20 minutes left until I clocked out of my shift. I received a notification on my phone. I pulled it out to see an email from my university reading spring semester moved online and summer study abroad canceled. There went my plans to study over the summer and to graduate early. It was May 15th, 2022. I was sitting in my commencement I was sitting in my commencement at my graduation ceremony, listening to the speaker talk about how we had been trained for the past four years and were ready to go into the harvest. But I was sitting there nervous. I was only 40% fundraised and was supposed to be getting on a plane three months from that date. How was I going to fundraise $50,000 before then? You see, these three snapshots of my life are moments where I questioned and doubted the sovereignty of our God. When I didn't get into NYU, I was mad at God for taking away something that I wanted so badly. But then he led me to the Moody Bible Institute. When my university plans changed because of COVID, I was angry that I wasn't gonna study over the summer and that I wasn't going to graduate early. But then I was led to an internship here in England. And when I sat in my graduation ceremony, feeling hopeless about how I was ever going to get enough money to end up in the UK to work alongside you guys here in this church, the Lord met me with his grace and provided exactly what I needed to board that plane. See, the sovereignty of God is something that I have been struggling with and wrestling with for a large portion of my life. But coming out of those three periods, I really could not be more thankful for God's sovereignty and his providence. He showed me things that I did not even know were possible. And only by his provision was I able to experience these new heights of joy that I had only ever previously thought were imaginable. So tonight, I'm really excited to talk with you all about God's sovereignty because I can say that I have tasted its sweetness firsthand. And after tonight, I'm hoping that you all will be able to say the exact same thing. See, as we've studied the book of Ezra up until this point, one of the recurring themes that we keep talking about is how the Lord uses his sovereignty to direct the flow of history. So tonight, as we dive back into the book of Ezra, we're going to focus more specifically on God's providence. You see, providence and sovereignty are two very closely related doctrines. Sovereignty is the ability for God to do whatever he pleases, while providence 
as the Westminster Larger Catechism says, is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, powerful preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Sovereignty means, sovereignty and providence means that God uses his power to direct the world toward the goal of his own glory. So tonight, we are going to focus on primarily what it means to live in a world that we know is providentially ruled by our God. Finally, in our study of Ezra, we get to Ezra 7 and we meet the character for whom the book is named after. He is the author of our book and holds a great personal attitude towards the providence of God, which really should be an example for us all. You see, in Ezra 7 and 8, we specifically see the phrase, the hand of God, or something similar, repeated about six different times throughout our passage. So our focus then for tonight, as we study these two chapters, is to see the three different ways in that Ezra understands what the hand of God means for his life. So our outline for this evening is this. We will first look at generational providence. Then we will look at daily providence. And then third, we will look at motivational providence. All of this so that we can see that the good hand of the Lord is on us, his people. So first, let's look together at generational providence, which if you're taking notes tonight, we see in Ezra 7 verses 1 through 6 and 8 verses 1 through 19. You see, our text for today follows an incredibly simple story. If we didn't believe that the Bible was God's word, Ezra chapter 7 and 8 would be some of the most forgettable texts in all of the Bible. The basic story is this. Ezra, a scribe, is sent by Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, to go to Jerusalem and make sure God's law law is upheld. This happens about 60 years from where we previously studied in Ezra 6 when the temple was completed. It's a pretty simple story with not too much sticking out to a secular reader. But the details that God chooses to include in this text teaches us a lot about who he is and the work that he is doing in this world. You see, at the beginning of Ezra 7, we see the genealogy of Ezra, a detail that we would often skip as modern readers because we think it's not that important. But as we talked about when we studied Ezra chapter 2, we as modern readers must ask why this genealogy is included here in this part of the story. So looking carefully at the genealogy, we can see that it appears one more time in Scripture, in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, showing us the chronology of the Levites. Ezra 7 then continues on that same genealogy, adding names until we get to Ezra, our protagonist. You see, there are a couple names that will be familiar to you. Aaron, who is the furthest back on, the, on this genealogy, is, it should be recognizable to us if you're familiar with the book of Exodus. Aaron was the brother of Moses and the first high priest in Israel. And then there are a, another couple of names that are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, such as Sarahiah, Hilkiah, and Zadok, who also served as high priests in Israel. So not only then is this genealogy placed here to establish that Ezra was was a Levite, which meant that his family was set apart for service of the temple, 
But Ezra also belonged to a line of high priests in Israel, giving Ezra then the authority to teach the people about the law of God and to uphold the law in Israel. This is where we see the first mention of that phrase, the hand of God, that I was talking about. In Ezra 7, verse 6, we see that God has given Ezra an understanding of the law and favor with the king because the hand of God was on him. The second then big mention of familial names that we have here in our text occurs in the first parts of Ezra chapter 8. Ezra is gathering a group of the exiles to return to Jerusalem and invites anybody who wishes to go along with him as he's been given permission by King Artaxerxes. In Ezra 8, chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, we see a list of these returners being a total number of about 1,500 men. Accounting for women and children then, this group would probably be close to about 5,000 people. Yet, as Ezra surveyed all the people who were hoping to go back to Jerusalem, he noticed one big glaring problem, and that there was no Levites in that group. How would Ezra be able to go to Jerusalem and uphold the law if there was no one who would go and be a fellow laborer with him? Ezra then stops at the river going to Ahava and sends some of the leading men to find Levites who would be willing to go with them to Jerusalem. You see, for the Levites who were really skilled as working as servants, surely they must have found some prosperity working in Babylon, making it really hard to recruit them for this journey. This is where we then come to our second by the good hand of God, which we see in Ezra 8, verse 18. When a man perfect for the job, Sherebiah, was found. Sherebiah himself appears several times throughout the Ezra and Nehemiah text as a leader of the people in Israel. So we know that it is truly by God's grace that this man was found. If our God is truly sovereign, then we must know that before the foundation of the world was laid, Our God knew that this exact situation was going to happen. And he specifically shaped and crafted family trees in such an intricate way that makes makes what happens here in Ezra chapter 7 and 8 not a surprise to our God. When we think about sovereignty in God, we tend to think about how God is working in a specific moment in time or how he worked for a specific moment in time in the past. But what we fail to do when we, when we zoom into these particular moments is zoom out and see the rest of the picture, how God is working throughout all generations in history. This is why I want us to specifically look at how Ezra is thinking about providence, because he sees God's generational providence, or how God has been faithful to his people in such an interconnected manner. Famous theologian R.C. Sproul once said this, he said, there is not a piece of cosmic dust that is, without, that is outside the scope of God's sovereign providence. To that we should all respond, amen. But let's actually dive in and take this statement to its logical end. Before God created the world, in his omnipotence, he knew that every decision man was going to make or could ever make, 
He has seen every reality in which today you decided to wear a white shirt or a black shirt. He has seen every reality where you chose to be an accountant or an architect. But our God, in his infinite mercy and providence, has brought this exact reality into existence because he is working this reality for his own glory. As we read earlier in the Westminster Confession, God has ordered the world's actions for his own glory. That means that there isn't some multiverse, some string theory or alternate reality out there like we read in science fiction stories or see in Marvel movies. But instead, we live in the one reality where our God will receive the most glory because he is the one deserving of it. There is not a piece of cosmic dust that is outside of God's sovereign providence. So God then, leading up to the time of Ezra, has set up human genealogies and families in such a way that Ezra would be born in the line of high priests in Israel. He would be favored by King Artaxerxes. He would be sent to Israel to uphold the law of God in the land. And that also, Sherebiah the Levite would join them, then becoming a leader in Israel. God knew that the situation would happen in this world because he planned it and then set that plan into motion. The good hand of the Lord leaves his fingerprints all over creation. From the beginning of time, our God has meticulously planned the generations. Every creature of this whole world whether it be the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, or the insects of the land, he planned their genealogy from beginning to end. And if our God is concerned with the genealogy of ants, then think how much more he is concerned with the genealogy of those who bear his image. We can relate to our God in a way that no other creature can. So he works through his people for his own glory, allowing his people to join in with God in his glory. If you're still not convinced by my argument that our God governs and and orders his whole creation for his glory, then think no further than our Savior, Jesus Christ. The beginning of the Gospel of Matthew contains a 17-verse genealogy tracing Abraham to David to even Zerubbabel, who we saw earlier in the book of Ezra down to Jesus. God used these prominent figures and worked throughout their entire genealogy. Not only that Jesus would be born in the, in the line of Abraham and David, but also to meet specific prophecies regarding his own birth. He was born in the town of Bethlehem as was prophesied in Micah 5.2. Then he grew up in Nazareth fulfilling Isaiah 53 verse 3. God's providence spans generations and never ceases to work. So when we face the temptation then to only view God's providence on a day-to-day basis, let us also remember that our God who exists outside of time is able to see all the pieces of the puzzle and is working throughout every generation for his glory. 
So this leaves us with then two things that we can be doing right now concerning God's generational providence. And that is to look back and to look forward. Look back at how our God has worked in the generations that have come before you. If you come from a Christian family, then ask your parents or your grandparents how they met and knew Christ. If you don't come from a Christian family, if you're the first person in your family to come to Christ, then ask the person who discipled you or brought you in to, or showed you the way into the kingdom and ask them how Christ saved them. Ask who has directed you and see how, you, how they were saved. Look back at God's faithfulness in the past. And then we can look forward to the things that our God will providentially provide for us in the future. Have you ever thought that the sin that you are struggling with now and have been struggling with for a large period of your life, maybe for the benefit of the children that you are raising or the person that you are discipling? Because as you raise them up, you are able to train them how to stomp out and crush that sin. Think about the next generation that we are trying to point toward Christ. The work that you are doing in witnessing may be used in the next generation or even the generation after that. So let us then remember that our God works beyond our comprehension. And let us not pretend that the days that we are experiencing and living right now are isolated from the rest of history. While we may be familiar with viewing God's providence on a general, generational basis, one of the ways that we are most familiar with is seeing how God's, God uses his providence daily. So let's look at our number two, uh, God's daily providence, which we see in Ezra chapter seven, verses seven through 10, as well as eight, verses 31 through 34. Before Ezra and company could travel and make their journey down to Jerusalem. They needed the legal precedence to be able to do this big thing. To be able to move this many people would require the good graces of the government, especially in an absolute monarchy like we find in Persia. We see a letter from the king Artaxerxes to Ezra in Ezra 7 verses 11 through 24 where we specifically see why Artaxerxes is giving permission to Ezra to do this. You see, the king calls Ezra a priest and a scribe in, in verse 11. While we can understand that Ezra was probably in some way a copyist like we would initially think, there is also another meaning to the original Hebrew word that we should, be, that we should really come to understand as a clerk. So not only then was Ezra a scribe for the Hebrew people, but he was also an official under the rule of Artaxerxes, serving as a political administrator who functioned as a diplomat. He, he specifically aided the king in document interpretation. So since Ezra was an official and was working under the king, we also see himself committing to the study of God's word which then the Lord uses because Ezra has these unique qualifications to fulfill a role for the king. In the letter we have here in Ezra 7, Artaxerxes gives Ezra permission to go back to Jerusalem to see that God's law is observed. 
But beyond that as well, we also see the king provide a grant to buy sacrifices in temple vessels. We see him command the treasurers in the province to give supplies to Ezra. We see uh, the king free all temple officials from taxation. And we also see him authorize Ezra to set up a judicial system to see that the Jews obeyed these laws in order for Ezra to gain the trust of a, of a pagan king. This would require a long time of Ezra dedicating himself to serving Artaxerxes and fulfilling the role that God has called for him to do. And God, in his daily providence, never missed a day when, being, when, when providing for Ezra because the good hand of our God was on Ezra. And since they had that legal precedence for going, it was then time for them to start the journey. After gathering the necessary people and supplies to travel to Jerusalem, it seems like Ezra and company were ready to head out for this long trek. This, this journey from Babylon to Jerusalem would be about 900 miles. Well, in our modern day, 900 miles sounds like a pretty quick flight Back in the ancient days, 900 miles is a multiple month journey requiring not only a lot of preparation, but a lot of prayer. Not only would it be a difficult journey in terms of length, but it was also going to be a difficult journey in terms of robbers and evil people that they would run into on the road. You see, back in the ancient Near East, thieves would wait alongside the road in between towns, and when they thought the coast was clear, they would come and they would rob the travelers of whatever they could. So before the journey then could begin, Ezra decided to do probably the most important thing that he could do. Look with me at Ezra chapter eight, verses 21 through 23. Ezra writes this, he says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listed to our and he listened to our entreaty. See, before they leave, Ezra calls for a fast, knowing that this journey ahead of them is going to be incredibly difficult. They also didn't have the protection from the king's forces because Ezra knew that the Lord was watching over them. Ezra is not saying here in this passage that he regrets saying this truth to the king, but what he is saying is that he doesn't want to confuse the king. And have the king misunderstand Ezra's claim that God is with them by asking for support from the king. So they seek the Lord through prayer and fasting, knowing that the Lord shows his daily providence by letting his hand be on all who seek him, which is the third hand of God phrase that we see mentioned in this text. Ezra's instinct to seek the Lord in prayer for his daily providence is an instinct that we all need to have as believers. 
Only when, we be, only when we begin to acknowledge that our God provides can we begin to fully rely on him for protection. Ezra does not wait until they run into their first speed bump on this journey to seek the Lord, then asking the Lord for assistance once trouble has already come. Instead, Ezra seeks God before anything happens knowing that he can come to the Lord and rely on God for protection. And for Ezra, he proved to be exactly correct in this instinct. Because in Ezra 7 verse 9, we see the fourth use of this phrase, that the good hand of our God was on Ezra. And that he was able to make the journey from Jerusalem, uh, make the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem safely. In God's daily providence, He looks after his people daily. What I want us to specifically notice is the parallel that we see between Ezra 7, 9, and 8, 22, the two mentions of the hand of God that I've been talking about under this heading. In 8, 22, Ezra mentions that the hand of God is on all who seek him. And then in 7, 9, we see exactly why the hand of God is on on Ezra because in 7, 10, We see that Ezra set his heart to studying the law of the Lord and teaching the law to Israel. The hand of God was on Ezra because he was seeking the Lord and trying to serve him. So if we want the hand of God to direct us in this life, then we need to be playing on the same team as our God. You see, if life were a big football match, God would be on one team and while all of us in our sin would be on the other because we would be playing for our own glory and our God would be playing for his. And when you're against God, let me give you a little bit of a spoiler, there is never going to be any chance of winning. It would be like if we were to build the best football team out of members here of this church and then go challenge Liverpool to a game wouldn't turn out very well. There would be no chance for us to win. But when we are saved in Christ, when we repent of our sins and partake in the grace that he has given us, we change sides. We start playing for our God. And not surprisingly, we are guaranteed to win. See, the hand of our God is on his people on a daily basis, providing for them exactly what they need. It may not be exactly what our limited minds could want at that time, but he gives us everything that we need to bring glory to his name. The Lord has willed this, and we can trust in him to provide and to protect us on a daily basis. This protection that he offers is open to us all, but you must be on the same side as him, which means that Jesus must be your savior. So if you want to join the winning team, if you want the good hand of God to be on you daily, then you need to embrace the grace of Christ. And now quickly, let's look at our third point, motivational providence that we see in Ezra chapter seven, verses 27 through 28, as well as eight, verses 31 through 34. See, knowing that the Lord was with them, Ezra and the rest of his caravan were able to safely travel from Babylon to Jerusalem over that 900 miles. This trip took nearly four months to complete. 
averaging about 10 miles of travel a day. And the Lord provided for them the entire time. We see our fifth instance of the hand of God phrase here in Ezra 8 verse 31. Ezra writes, Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of our enemy and from ambushes by the way. Because Ezra knew that the hand of God was on him, both throughout the generations of Israel as well as in his daily life. He was able to lead the people with confidence on this long and dangerous journey. The Lord had protected them, delivering them from the hands of their enemies, protecting them from any attack that could have come their way. Understanding the full range of the Lord's providence meant that they could use God's providence as motivation to make this journey and honor the Lord with what he has called them to do. Ezra then praises God for his providence. In one of, my, in one of the, my favorite parts of Ezra 7, he writes, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. The providence of the Lord leads us to take courage. For in, our, in the hand of a God, in our final hand of God phrase that we see here in Ezra, our author tells us that he was able to take courage knowing that God was going to provide for him. Now I want to make a quick clarification on what it means to take courage knowing that God's providence is with his people. I don't want us to become a bunch, of, a bunch of determinists thinking that every outcome in this world is solidified because we don't have any say in the matter. When we think of God's sovereignty, we must understand that we have moral agency as well. Mankind is responsible for their own actions, including the actions of sin while God is also sovereignly reigning. When we as mankind make choices, those choices flow out of our hearts and out of our personal judgment. And since God is our creator, he can also necessitate the actions that need to happen in order to bring himself the most glory. All of that without taking away our own agency in this life. This is best understood in the life and the crucifixion of Christ. It was the Father's will that Jesus suffer and die, but also Jesus actively obeyed the Father's will. We see this as a contradiction in our eyes, but let me tell you that we are failing to see the bigger picture because in the eyes of our God who sees all, this isn't a contradiction. We have the responsibility as created people under God to obey his commandments alongside with also acknowledging that our God is sovereign. So then we must let God's sovereignty and providence motivate us to give and motivate motivate us and give us courage to work alongside him. 
We've been given the grace of the gospel. We've been saved in Jesus Christ. And now it is our responsibility to take this good news to other people. Let us take the courage to go boldly into the harvest that is in such desperate need of workers. Let us sow as many seeds as we can and reap the growth that the Lord has given. Once we acknowledge how our God is working in the world around us, it will only become easier for us to work alongside him and to continue working for the growth of his kingdom. So church, take heart in the fact that you have received salvation in Jesus Christ. You are right in the eyes of God because you have a share in Christ's righteousness. Look at how God then is working throughout all of history and continues to work to this day. Then take courage, just like Ezra, and rely on both generational and daily providence, motivating you to reach the world with the good news of the gospel that you have already been a partaker of. Take courage, church, for the good hand of our God is on us. Amen. Let's pray.